Are we good? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will take a moment for silent prayer. It's possible that these jokes and festivities have left us unprepared for spiritual truth. So take a moment. Remember, God is spirit, must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the blessings we have to assemble together. Father, you are the God of truth. We are your children. The spirit of truth indwells each one of us. And so, Father, we call upon your faithfulness tonight to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in the paths of righteousness, not because we deserve it, for your name's sake. And I thank you, Father, for all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do want to return to our Philippians introduction, though, but before we do, we can take a few minutes for questions and answers. We have a microphone ready to be toted about. There we are. All right, and so our first question comes from the back row. Good evening. Good evening, Pastor Bob. Uh, so um, my question is from the Swan Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, uh-huh. uh, verse 21. Okay, Deuteronomy 32:21. So um, the question is, apart from the Abrahamic covenant and uh, God's promise to bless the nations through mm-hmm. Abraham, um, is this the only mention of um, Romans 9, the concept of Romans 9, 10, 11, in 21? Meaning, so it said it says that um, God is going to um, move away from the Israelite nation mm-hmm. to a nation because they have been foolish. He says, "I'm going to." Uh, um, let's see. And the way it says here is, um, "I will make them jealous right, for those right, who are not right, a people, for those who are right. not their people." And so he's he's moving away the blessing. Right, right, is, right. Is this where Paul thought of? Um, nine, ten, Romans nine, ten, eleven. Comes uh, it certainly, it must have been part of it, sure, um, but not the only passage. I think uh, we got Hosea passages as well, where a people who are not a people are now called my people, and some of the babies that are born and given names uh, to Hosea and Gomer, for example, uh, teach that particular doctrine. Um, it's it's remarkable because Mosaic law was so conditional, uh, whereas the Abrahamic covenant was completely unconditional, and so. Uh, the, the interaction between Abrahamic Covenant and Mosaic Covenant, not only was it a puzzle for the church, and Paul wrote about it in Galatians, but it, it was a puzzle to the Jews themselves for all those years because unconditional covenants are, are marvelous and then conditional covenants are hopeless because we, we never hold up our end and we're always so so sinful. Um, and, I, and I think that that interaction, there's many times that it speaks of God uh, disciplining the Jews and uh, taking them to captivity but then ultimately bringing them back and loving them and so forth. Um, but as far as a specific reference that might apply to Romans 9, 10, and 11, that might be a preview of the church, uh, only, I think, only with hindsight can you see that in the Old Testament because the church is a mystery. It's unrevealed. Um, there, there, there are clues like in Isaiah about, I will speak to this people through stammering lips and foreign tongues and 
And so they, they get the, there's little clues in the Old Testament, but I don't think that they're fully understandable until the hindsight of the church age makes those things clear. And uh, so, yeah, this is, this is marvelous, and it's part of our role as the bride of Christ to provoke Jewish people to jealousy. And it's one of the greatest things we can do in the church age in leading Jewish people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is to highlight the, uh, the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that's why, by the way, I mentioned this briefly on Sunday morning in the communion service because the, the cup speaks to the blood. And the blood for us, obviously, is our salvation, is the work that he did on our behalf and so forth. Um, but the blood for Israel, as it relates to the new covenant, is a blood that has not yet been applied. And that's why we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That it's our role in, in the bride of Christ to, to proclaim a completed work still with a future yet unapplied application. And that also is the provocation to show the Jewish people that you know, their Messiah came and they crucified him. And, and he's, he's now ascended to the Father's right hand. But he is coming back. That blood will be applied. It's going to, uh, Israel, the Jewish people, will be brought under the, the blood of the covenant. They'll be brought into the new covenant from the millennial kingdom. And so, yeah, there's a lot that's revealed in the Old Testament, but I think it's because of mystery doctrine and shadows, they're not going to fully understand it until the hindsight of the New Testament makes that very clear to them. That well, makes sense, I mean, it, it, right? It does. Um, okay. But you know, in reading through, as we were, we this verse sort of jumped out all of a sudden, mm-hmm. uh, wherein you know there was this introduction of the idea of Gentiles also being quote unquote grafted into of sorts, uh, to use the Romans terminology. Um, and so, right, I, we thought I thought this was the first occurrence of this outside of the Abrahamic covenant, but I could be wrong. I I was. Yeah, I'd have to think about that. There could be other uses. I'm just not... I don't know. Because obviously the Abrahamic covenant says, in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. So obviously through through the the Christ, Gentile nations as well as Israel will have blessings. But then beyond that, um, this may be the first. Yeah, I'd have to think about that. Uh, Another question I had also was about uh, Daniel 11. Uh Uh, You know, the king of the north and the king of the south and this bobbing, per se, of going back and forth between the two. Right. Um, I was reading one uh, translation where um, they put it rather simplistically, and I was wanting to check with you, which is that they were saying that the king of north could be taken as the king of Syria, and then king of south as the king of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And then the translation really went to saying king of king of Syria, king of Egypt, king of Syria, king of Egypt, instead of king of north, king of south. Is that a fairly okay translation, would you say? Or Well, I mean, it's the, the publishers uh, have definitely made oh, right. an interpretive decision, and right. I happen to agree with it. I think the Seleucid Empire to the north and the Ptolemy Kingdom to the south, I mean, they were, they were both Greek uh, uh, empires or, or kingdoms. Um, and so it's not, depending on the purpose of the publishers for doing that, I guess it's not... Not bad, but it's not a translation. It is an interpretive decision that they've come to on that. So that's curious. I thought it was overly simplistic, probably, but mm-hmm. uh, at least from an understanding standpoint of view, it makes Daniel 11 a little bit more right. easy to follow, per se. Well, and it is helpful, right, because yeah. you've got a sequence of prophecies in Daniel where you're looking at Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then it zooms in to where you're only looking at, at Persia and Greece, right? When the, when the goat kills the, the bear, you're, you've zoomed in on Persia and Greece. And then in the next chapter, it zooms in even closer just on Greece. 
and then it zooms in even closer to, to talk about two of those four heads. So we're clearly talking about Antiochus and, and Ptolemy, and then and Jerusalem, of course, is stuck right in the middle of those two, and when they wage war back and forth, Jerusalem's in the middle. Yeah. So that's, that's curious. I'm, let me know after class. I'm curious as to that Bible translation. I'll let you okay. see that. Yeah. I think it's NLT. I think. NLT? Okay. Oh, I've got that. I can look at that. Excellent. All right. Uh, other questions tonight? Good. That was excellent. Additional questions, comments, complaints. I'm teasing. I don't want complaints. But questions are good. This is our question and answer night. Uh, complaint night is tomorrow. Right, right. All right. Well, then let's uh, return to Philippians chapter 1. And uh, pick up our introduction where we left it off on Sunday. I tell you, it's such an exciting book, and we haven't gotten very far with it in terms of Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including overseers and deacons. Um, The Greek does not have the uh, definite article in front of episkopoi or diakonoi, so... um, I prefer to take the the out of overseers and deacons and just leave it as uh, indefinite objects. But um, that being said, we have a local church that's being addressed here. And a local church is a lampstand. It's a body of believers in a locality, whether it's Philippi or Austin or Cross Park Drive or whatever, that there is a designated location and and specified times where believers assemble together in the name of Jesus Christ. And when we assemble together in the name of Jesus Christ, he is here in our midst. And so we have regular places, regular times, regular services as a part of all things being done orderly in a properly manner and uh, in these things with their application. And so a local church is a body of saints and it's a body of saints that are gathered together with the structured leadership that the New Testament provides and that being overseers and deacons, right? Those are the offices that are provided for the local church. And uh, it's spelled out that way here in verse 1, and we'll spend some time with that when we get to uh, the actual uh, exposition of this chapter, the uh, overseers and deacons. All right, so far, as far as our introduction is concerned, uh, clearly written by Paul and Timothy, and, uh, and I recommend you just go through Paul's 13 epistles and see the ones that he writes and the ones that he labels with co-authors, and notice how many times Timothy shows up as a co-author. All right. Um, and uh, he's either a co-author or a recipient of, of uh, most of Paul's writings. Uh, I mean, two of the letters are written to him, uh, First and Second Timothy. And then where he's co-author, uh, just off the top of my head, I can think about First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians, because both of those books are written by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Um, he's not a co-author of Galatians. Uh, he had not yet been picked up as a traveling companion when Paul wrote Galatians. And plus, he was just a 10-year-old kid and not uh, not in that capacity yet. Uh, but 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, not 1 Corinthians, interestingly enough, because he's the courier for 1 Corinthians. But 2 Corinthians, he's a co-author. Not Romans, all right? But Philippians, he is. Colossians, he is. Philemon, he is. But not Ephesians. So why is that? Why three out of the four prison epistles, and why not Ephesians, and why not Romans, all right? And then, of course, the pastoral epistles, he's not a co-author, but he receives two of them, uh, First and Second Timothy, as far as that goes. Anyway, it's also unusual, many of Paul's letters, he writes off, he starts off with Paul, an apostle, Paul, an apostle, according to the will of God, Paul, an apostle 
you know, not through the will of man, but through the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, this is one of the letters that he does not defend his apostleship. And to the Philippians, he has no need to defend his apostleship. It is such a thankful uh, correspondence with them. So instead of calling himself an apostle, he includes Timothy and then says, we are both slaves, douloi, bondservants or slaves of Christ Jesus. And we understand slavery in the ancient world, slavery in the medieval world, slavery in the early modern world, and slavery still exists today in many parts of the world. Um, as we uh, work our way through those kind of issues, all right? <clears throat> Bond servants of Christ Jesus. So we have the authorship, quite simply, Paulos kai Timotheos douloi Christu Yesu. And why is it Christ Jesus rather than Jesus Christ? Why is it in this order? It's that order twice, by the way, in verse 1, because you have the bondservants of Christ Jesus, also the saints in Christ Jesus. And uh, some discussion there on why does it get put in that order instead of the normal order of Jesus Christ. And so um, there's a whole lot of people that have made careers out of describing why that's important. And uh, I don't know that I'm actually convinced or persuaded by many of the arguments they come up with. But nevertheless, we will address that as we get to verse 1. Secondly, the recipients. We know the church of Philippi because of the narrative that we have in Acts 16. Although to be fair, uh, the narrative of Acts 16 does not exactly tell us how the church was formed. We know how they traveled there. We know about Lydia. We know about her hospitality. We know how they met at the riverside okay, and sparked that song down by the riverside. Right? We know that uh, the Philippian jailer got saved after that next morning when Paul did not escape from the uh, jail with the broken doors. Uh, that uh, he led the jailer to, to salvation and the jailer's household. And we imagine right away there's a thriving bunch of believers here ready to be fed, ready to form a church. And uh, as to the best we understand, that's where Luke got dropped off. And Luke stayed there to help head up that new church, as far as we know, uh, because the we narrative of the book of Acts disappears at Philippi. And so uh, while Paul and Silvanus and Timothy moved on to Thessalonica, Evidently, Luke stayed in Philippi, and it's in Philippi, by the way, when the we narrative returns on a return trip, uh, Luke rejoins the team there in Philippi and sails to to uh, Troas. So anyway, written to the saints of Philippi, pasin tois hagiois to all the saints, to all the holy ones, and they're all saints. Every believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. We will teach that, that we're all saints. And so if you want to call yourself, you know, uh, St. Louis, you know, you can, but <laughs> that's kind of taken already with the town, isn't it? But uh, St. Anne, St. Carlton, whatever the case may be, St. Doug, um, we are all saints. And we don't need a vote from the Pope or the Cardinals or some kind of official declaration to be made that the Roman Church has this uh, mythology built around elevating Christians to sainthood status. And it's sad the way they do that. And the Orthodox Church does the same thing in the in the East. Um, we're all saints. Every If you're saved, you're, you're a saint. When you accept Christ for your eternal life, God has set you apart for his eternal purpose. And so we are saints in Christ Jesus, together with overseers and deacons. And um, to the saints in Philippi, tois usin in Philippois, who are all in Philippi, together with, soon, together with, episcopois kai diakonois, Elders and deacons, elders and deacons, or actually overseers and deacons, episcopois, 
Chi Diakonois. We'll talk about those offices as well. Thirdly, by way of introduction, written during an imprisonment. You can't doubt that Paul's imprisoned. The, the case is clear. In chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, the ongoing afflictions he's dealing with are imprisonment afflictions. And in verse 7, he says, "...in both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel." You are all partakers of grace with me. That he has an ongoing imprisonment. Verse 13, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian and to everyone else. It is a present ongoing imprisonment that is still ongoing, but the fact that it's ongoing now is multiplying the effects of the gospel. And so he's not grumbling about it, he's happy about it. I want you to know, verse 12, I want you to know, brother, that my circumstances, my present circumstances ongoing right now, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And that presently there's actually two different teams of of evangelizers going on. Some with true motives and then others with bad motives, which is kind of disappointing, isn't it? But hey, those things work together for good also. And uh, Paul says, all right, I'll rejoice in that too. If there's an evangelist out there who's got all the wrong motives for what he's doing, well, okay, he's throwing away his reward, but there's still people getting saved. How about that? (laughs) You know, as sad as the Roman Catholic Church is, guess what? There's still Bibles in those churches, and there are still people that pick up those Bibles in those churches. They still read about uh, eternal life in those Bibles in those churches. Even if their theology is a hindrance to the gospel, the Bible's still there. And it's amazing the folks that get saved because they, they read what's written. It's how Martin Luther got saved, reading the book of Galatians, reading Romans, reading the New Testament. He was an Augustinian monk teaching theology and had never read the New Testament. And so his mentor recommends, hey, why don't you read the New Testament? I think it'll cheer you up. And he reads the New Testament and he gets saved. All right. Amazing how that improves your ministry once you get saved. Okay. There's amazing things. So We'll see these lessons. We'll see how all things work together for good. We'll see the impact of this here in uh, chapter 1. Now, the fact that he's imprisoned is self-evident. And so it sparked all kinds of traditions and debates and arguments over the years. Different legends and traditions about which imprisonment and uh, and so forth. And, And the dominant theory has been the Roman theory. Dominant because, of course, the Roman church has a vested interest in making it the dominant theory and in promoting Rome as the first among equals, the bishop of Rome as the, as the prime bishop, and uh, the church at Rome as, as really being the headquarters for Christendom on earth because clearly if this is where Paul died and this is where Peter died and Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, you know, you can cre- create an extreme mythology centered on the city of Rome uh, as, as far as those things go. But there's nothing in Philippians that says it was written from Rome. And uh, and I think the evidence we'll see tonight argues strongly against it. Uh, The the travel distance is too far for all the back and forth we see in Philippians chapter 2. And so alternatively, Caesarea could be an authorship location. He he was in prison for two years in Caesarea. Uh, Conceivably, he wrote the epistles there. And uh, But again, there's travel distance of, of a longer time. The Ephesus imprisonment is the best because it's the closest in proximity. It also fits well for sending a letter to Colossae, sending a letter to Philemon, sending a letter to the Philippians, and sending a letter to the Ephesians if, in fact, Paul is in hiding uh, at the time that he composes Ephesians. And so those, uh, those aspects as well we have to look at. Is, is, F, is Ephesians truly a prison epistle or is it a, 
uh, hiding in an undisclosed location so I don't go back to prison epistle and written to the Ephesians in uh, the way that it's written there. We'll talk about that when we get to Ephesians. I'm going to make the case for the Ephesus imprisonment as the source. And it really doesn't affect our applications. It doesn't affect all the beautiful doctrines of kenosis and prayer and like-mindedness and the, the peace of God that surpasseth all understanding. Every, uh, our citizenship is in heaven. Every, every doctrine that you teach in, in Philippians does not get affected whether it was sent from Rome or sent from Ephesus or sent from Caesarea or sent from, uh, you know, wherever. As long as he was in prison when he wrote it, the truth is the truth and the applications are there. The dating of the epistle is dependent upon which imprisonment is understood for its origin. Like I say, it doesn't affect our understanding of Philippians. But um, nevertheless, I think there are allusions to things in Philippians that will assist in unfolding other things in 2 Corinthians and in Romans. That... um, Second Corinthians and Romans actually become more enriched if we can find uh, inferences and allusions out of Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians uh, into those books. And so that, uh, that may be really the, the biggest impact we have on insisting upon a particular date or a particular origin. So if you want to camp on the Roman imprisonment, well then it was AD 60 to 62. And uh, and it was written after First and Second Corinthians and Romans. All right. If uh, you prefer the Caesarean imprisonment, same thing, uh, AD fifty eight to sixty. And uh, again, it's after Romans and after Second Corinthians. But if you go with the Ephesian imprisonment concepts, and if there were multiple Ephesian imprisonments, which I think there were, then uh, you have a Philippians authorship earlier, and then a Colossians. Uh, Philemon imprisonment, and then you have a uh, undisclosed hidden location for Ephesus, and um, all of that before Second Corinthians and Romans, and uh, that may make a difference as you understand the doctrine of those books uh, being unfolded. So, if you go with the Ephesian date, we're talking fifty-five to fifty-seven, all right, in the mid-fifties A.D. for the uh, the writing of this book. A lot of times the term praetorium and the expression Caesar's household, they're pointed to as proof that Rome has to be the origin because they look at praetorian and they say, well, that's the praetorian guard. That's the secret service that protects the president, right? The praetorian guard was the, the uh, soldiers that protected Caesar during the empire time. Well, yes, but it was a broader term than that and really it refers to any palace. Uh, Jesus was brought into the praetorian when he stood before Pilate uh, there was a praetorian in uh, Caesarea that Paul was taken into when he was taken into custody. There's a praetorian in any Roman city where there is a Roman headquarters, a Roman palace will have a praetorian. And so it doesn't really demand Rome as a setting. Neither does Caesar's household. Caesar's household simply refers to the estate, it refers to the slaves that managed Caesar's affairs, his steward in a particular location. And so Caesar's household could could be a Jerusalem setting or a Caesarea setting or an Ephesus setting or anything quite naturally. We we need a better we need an old te- uh, a first century view of what a household is. We need to separate our thinking away from our 21st century view of a household. We think of mom and dad and the kids and we're sitting around the dinner table and that's the household, right? So when Paul says all of Caesar's household greets you, we have this concept like wow. 
You know, Paul was invited to Caesar's household. You know, he sat down with Nero and Mrs. Nero and the kids, and they just, you know, they had dinner one night, and they played games or had some fun, and then Paul gave them the gospel, and now they're all saved, and they're telling hi to the Philippian believers. That's not the case, okay? When you see Caesar's household in chapter 4 and verse 22, the household includes the slaves, and includes the estates, and includes the property which is flung far and wide throughout the Roman Empire. And most especially in a place like Ephesus where you have a senatorial province, all right? There's a senatorial province whereby the governor uh, answers to the Senate. They don't answer. It's not an imperial province. It's a senatorial province. And in a senatorial province, the governor answers to the Senate, not to Caesar. And so Caesar's household in those kind of settings has a steward and has managers and has officials that are very much uh, important in uh, in that locality. Anyway, neither expression is a defeater for the Ephesus in pres- uh, for the Ephesian authorship uh, theory, and uh, neither is it conclusive as to a Roman authorship theory. All right, Sunday morning I spent some time reading to you out of the Lexham Bible Dictionary, and I do recommend that. It gives you a great background and history on Philippi. It was, uh, although other Greek cities would mock it for being so new, being so young, um, it uh, had a bit of a history before Paul ever visited it. And uh, some really world uh, history, changing history, because this is where uh, Octavius and, and Anthony defeated Brutus. And so the assassins of Julius Caesar did not get away with that assassination, and the civil war that was then launched was settled at Philippi. That ended the civil war. And so Brutus and the co-conspirators that uh, succeeded to to uh, assassinate Julius Caesar, they did not succeed in restoring the republic and uh, and uh, in, in restore, uh, reestablishing a republican mode of government. So it was clearly, uh, whereas Julius instituted a dictatorship, Augustus uh, really brought in the empire. And that's, uh, I think that's a fair and accurate description there. So Philippi has a lot of history attached to it. And we spent the time looking at that on Sunday. Also, we did the map work again to remind us of what we're dealing with, with Philippi. Everyone ought to be able to find Philippi on a map, and you can spot it there in the top left. This is your Macedonian region there, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, the cities that we know well from Acts 17, 16 to 17, and the, that second missionary journey that where the gospel was brought here. And then the lower region, sometimes called Greece. Sometimes you've got Achaia. Uh, as a province that's mentioned, but Athens and Corinth there, and uh, Ephesus here where Paul set up his headquarters uh, at the beginning of the third missionary journey. The third missionary journey again, which had his headquarters in Ephesus where they traveled here. He wrote Romans and then he traveled back and uh, again passing through Philippi both times, right? On the second missionary journey, they only passed through once, once and one time only. On the third missionary journey, they passed through, that would be Paul's second visit, and then uh, he put people on a boat to sail over here, but he himself came back around for his third visit to Philippi, picked up Luke, and then they all had their uh, powwow rendezvous there at Troas, where finally we have the episode of... of, um, uh, Eutychus falling asleep and falling out the window and the aspects there. Or was that at Miletus? I, I could be misstating that here tonight. Anyway, the second missionary journey, one trip through Philippi. Third missionary journey, two trips through Philippi. 
And why are those things important? Because um, of details we pick up in the book of Philippians, details whereby the Philippians did not have an opportunity to uh, provide funds for the Apostle Paul. But now at last they have the opportunity. Now at last they've revived their concern for him. Now at last they are able to provide financial gifts. And um, those expressions become significant for us when we start to realize, well, wait a minute, why didn't they have an opportunity when Paul passed through town the second time and the third time on his third missionary journey? And they got all this money together to send to saints at Jerusalem. How come they don't have any money to, to spot Paul some travel funds? And uh, we'll talk about that because Paul is either very flattering or very insulting, depending, I think, on how we read the chronology of this and how we read the inferences that are made. And Paul's not intending to be insulting in any event. He's thanking God for their grace perspective. He tells the Philippians they've got the best grace orientation with, with respect to money than any flock he's ever seen. Even in Thessalonica, they supported him more than once. And so he praises them. And it, it is true praise every time we see it. And that, I think, becomes a clue for us uh, that argues conclusively for the Ephesus origin rather than the Roman origin. If he's writing from Rome, the things he says about their money policies are, are rather insulting if he's writing from Rome. And that should be clear also. We'll see that here shortly. All right, now beyond that, I want to pick up in chapter 2, and let's spend some time on this travelogue. Let's spend some time on the details, and let's remind ourselves that for everything we see in this chapter, there were feet that did some walking, okay? Uh, feet did some walking, boats did some sailing. There was a travel that took place that none of the news back and forth, news that we take for granted today, news that we take for granted because communication today is, is, is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary and uh, the fact that we have texting and we have skype and we have vis uh, we have video conferencing and we have things you know that 30 years ago was science fiction 30 years ago the idea that you know kirk was on his starship somewhere and he'd say you know there's a message coming in from starfleet and he'd say on screen you know and spock would push a knob and bloop, you know here's on screen and Captain Kirk is able to talk to whoever on screen. Ooh, you know, high tech. And, and imagine such a thing. And yet that's a reality today on screen. We got Skype and FaceTime and all this other stuff and video conferencing. And in, in, in my pocket, I can be chatting with a guy in, in Uganda. Okay, a pastor that I met in Uganda is sending me instant messages through Facebook. And uh, well, that's the way it is. And now here we are globally being prepared for, I think, prepared for the image of the beast and prepared for the uh, the global um, video uh, webcam where the uh, uh, martyrs of Revelation 11 are going to be put to death and their bodies will lay in the streets in Jerusalem for three days. And the whole world will watch their bodies for three days. Say, well, when I was ordained, that was not really technically possible. But today it's very easily possible. You know, I mean, you get webcams today on all kinds of stupid stuff, you know, squids on treadmills and whatever. And, and, and there's a webcam for that, you know, or there's an eagle nest and we're going to watch this egg hatch for a month until it finally does hatch, you know, and the whole world can tune in and watch these things happen. 
It's extraordinary. So on the travel log, notice verses 19 through 24, verses 25 through 30. And what we have here is an outline for past travels of Epaphroditus, the immediate travels of Timothy, the subsequent travels of Epaphroditus, and then the ultimately intended travels of Paul. So verse 19 says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. He's not going to go to the airport and get on a Southwest Airlines flight and fly wherever. He's going to walk. He's going to, he's going to get on a mule. He's going to get on a boat, either from Rome or Caesarea or Ephesus or somewhere. He's going to go from point unknown, you know, point of Paul's imprisonment, Paul's present prison, to Philippi. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. What does that mean? Timothy has to walk back. Or somebody else with a letter from Timothy has to walk back. Paul has to receive Timothy's report about the Philippian condition. So there's a journey that has to go from point A to to point B. We'll say point B is always Philippi for this illustration. So from point A to point B, Timothy has to travel there, and then Timothy or somebody else has to travel back with Timothy's report. Because it's only through Timothy's eyewitness, through Timothy's discernment, that Paul will truly give the report there that, that Paul needs as to their condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Everybody else in the training ministry isn't ready for this kind of assignment. They're not ready for a Sunday morning sermon in another church somewhere. They're still uh, kind of in the rookie mode of doing a Wednesday here and there, or maybe a Sunday here and there, or a Sunday night maybe. Uh, but they're not yet ready to, to go out of the, the local church and travel abroad. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth. And this reaches another point of study with respect to what do they know about Timothy and how do they know it? What did they see when he was there? How many times has Timothy been there? You know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And that's their exposure to Timothy. The the ministry that he had with them in Acts 16. They don't know about Timothy, the courier of 1 Corinthians. They don't know about Timothy, the Bible teacher in Thessalonica. They don't know about Timothy, uh, who had been a co-author of 2 Corinthians, or Timothy, who had been a co-author of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. They don't know about some of the other things we know about Timothy with our uh, perspective on things. This points to a very early authorship of Philippians, and this points to limited exposure to Paul and limited exposure to Timothy in the meantime. Their uh, hint of Timothy is what they saw on that time, right? Am I making sense? Because, you know, sometimes we had a guest here, you know, last night uh, for the wedding. And, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, when you don't see somebody for a while, maybe the, your last memory of them was when they were a teenager attending your pastor's teen workshop, <laughs> okay? And you don't realize, oh, wow, here you are, the, the mother of three. Okay, something happened. <laughs> okay, years have gone by. One of us is getting old, maybe both of us. Okay, and so as those years go by, you realize, wow, wait a minute. And so now we have new memories we can add to those old memories. No longer just, you know, the teenager. Um, now we have, wow, mother of three. New memories. Okay, And when you don't see somebody for a long, long time, you can be kind of, your mind can be blown on some occasions, see. Anyway, 
The funniest story on that is my son, who spoke in Sweeney. And uh, he spoke at a church where I had spoken 20 years ago. <laughs> and there was a visitor there that day who had heard me 20 years ago and thought that Bob was me. Is that insane or what? But, but here's Bob and Elvira visiting the church, and this guy comes up and says, Wow, you have really held up well over all these years, <laughs> you know? And uh, it's kind of hilarious. And Bob says, no, I'm, I'm not the Bob you think I am. That's my dad. And he, he got old, you know, you got to see him. But anyway, that, that's the kind of thing. And that's what we're talking about here. If, if your memory, you know, I joined the army. My sister was a nine-year-old little girl with pigtails. And it's, you know, I got to quit thinking of her like that because she's not a nine-year-old little girl with pigtails anymore. She's now a mother and, and married and widowed and remarried. And, and she's, uh, she's not the nine-year-old little girl with pigtails that she used to be. But do I have a hard time, uh, you know, thinking in the, or not thinking in those terms? Of course I do. That's what big brothers are for, you know, um, as far as that goes. So if it's been a while since you've seen somebody, what's your memory of that person? Their memory of Timothy is right here. A child serving his father. He served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. So therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And so there's just one little thing that's hanging. You know, Paul would send him today if he could, but he needs one little thing to, to find out what this jail sentence is going to do. How, how's the judge going to rule? What's going to happen? As soon as that verdict comes down, Timothy can hit the road and, and go, to, go to Philippi. So... Um, also, he says, I trust in the Lord that I myself will be coming shortly. So there's an additional travel plan of Paul's. But that travel plan of Paul's is going to wait until what? Shortly, he says. But in the meantime, Timothy's going to travel there. Timothy's going to come back, going to report on their condition. And Paul, still in jail, will have an encouragement when he learns of their condition. Then he also says... I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. All right, so when is he going to go? When is Epaphroditus going to go? Is he going to go before Timothy? Is he going to go after Timothy? Any thoughts on that? If you think about it, it, it explains itself. They can't read these words until somebody travels there. <laughs> okay? He's writing these words down, or his scribe is writing these words down. They can't read... They can't read these words about, I hope to send Timothy to you. You realize that if they're reading a letter that says, I hope to send Timothy to you, somebody carried that letter. Somebody, not Timothy, carried that letter saying, I hope to send Timothy to you shortly. So who carried that letter? Epaphroditus carried that letter. And it says so right here. It says, therefore, um, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Here's the guy I already did send. And you're reading about it now because you've you got the scroll in your hand, okay? We don't think about these things. I think we are crippled. Our modern technology has left us crippled because getting word back and forth, I can get word in a heartbeat from everywhere. Today alone, today alone, I heard from, from uh, San Diego, California. I heard from Spokane, Washington, although the guy in Spokane, Washington who called me was calling on a cell phone from Florida, I looked at my caller ID, it said Florida. I said, I don't know anybody in Florida. So I let it go to voicemail. And it was a friend of mine from Spokane. All right, so I got to call him back now because I listened to his voicemail and 
he uh, was calling me from Spokane. All right, so I'll call him back. And then I get a text message from Uganda. Isn't these things amazing? So everything here in this chapter is getting more and more alien to us, I think, with each passing um, upgrade to Windows Messenger or to Facebook Messenger or to uh, Skype or to anything. So I hope, so I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Okay, but guess what? Epaphroditus wasn't born and raised in Ephesus. Guess where he came from? He came from Philippi. Notice, he is also your messenger and minister to my need. Oh, here's a story. The word messenger, by the way, is apostolos. It's the word apostle. And we don't take him as an apostle by spiritual gift or apostle by office, but he is the Philippian apostle. The Philippians apostelloed Epaphroditus. They commissioned him and they sent him to Paul. Your messenger and minister to my need. So at some point in the past, the Philippians got news that Paul was in jail. And even if we don't know where that jail was, the Philippians did because they sent Epaphroditus with some funds. They sent Epaphroditus to to serve Paul. And they heard where Paul was. So they heard where Paul was. They sent Epaphroditus to serve Paul. And here's here's Epaphroditus showing up, reporting for duty. Okay? The Apostle Paul might say, well, who are you? (laughs) Oh, you're from Philippi. Great. Love you. Okay? Um, Those kind of things. When I first came to Austin Bible Church, I didn't realize that John Eichmann had called Ralph Braun and said, by the way, there's a there's a young 21-year-old army MP on the way, and uh, he's gonna he's gonna check in. He's gonna he thinks he might be a pastor teacher by gift. Uh, you know, what does he know? But you know, check him out, be friendly, and see if uh, if that's his gift or not. And so you know, I knocked on the door. I introduced myself, and Ralph said, "Oh yeah, I know all about you. <laughs> I already have the full briefing here." Again, because of modern communication. Back then, it was called telephone. In, uh, and, and back then you paid extra when you called from Washington State to Texas. That was called long distance. And so you didn't make those kind of calls unless it was something important or you waited till the weekend or evenings or something to, uh, to make the, a phone call like that. So uh, he is your messenger and minister to my need. Remember when we studied the server minister gift? The server minister was somebody that just showed up and said, hey, I'm here to serve you. I am your minister. I am your servant. I am not a minister to the church. I'm a minister to you. So what do you need? (laughs) You need any coffee? You need, uh, what do you need? I understand you're in prison right now, so you can't exactly run your own errands. Can I go to H-E-B for you? Can I hit the dry cleaner? Can I get your suit pressed? What what do you need, Paul? And this minister to Paul's need is going to handle, you need a letter carried back to Philippi? All right, I'll do it. Problem is, though, He got sick in the process. So he was longing for you all. He's the minister to Paul's need, but he really has a desire to get back to Philippi. He misses those saints in Philippi. Why? Longing for you all was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Now, how did that happen? You realize every time we have an expression, you had heard... There was a journey. How did the Philippians hear that Paul was sick? Or that Epaphroditus was sick, I'm sorry. 
So understand what happens. Epaphroditus, you know, you know how many trips this requires? Epaphroditus is in Philippi. The Philippian church is doing their Philippian church thing. The overseers and deacons are overseeing and deaconing. Church is doing well, except they're struggling financially. They had been able to give some money to Paul early, but then a season came, they couldn't. All right, so funds are dry. But then they get word, Paul's in jail. Ah. So somebody traveled from Paul's jail to Philippi and said, Paul's in jail. They didn't get that from Twitter. They didn't get that from Facebook. They didn't get that from... Somebody traveled from Paul's jail to Philippi and said, Paul's in jail. And lo and behold, the Philippians got all excited and said, great, because we finally have a chance to send another financial gift. Our budget's been, we've been in the red. Our budget's been thin. Our budget's been hurting for some time. And now, finally, coinciding, right? Not a coincidence, but coinciding, we get the news that Paul's in jail and we've got a surplus. We can, we can support Paul again. And so lo and behold, Epaphroditus is dispatched. You'll be our apostle. You're going to carry some funds. You're going to be a minister to Paul's needs. And so they get news. They send Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus gets there. Epaphroditus gets sick. Sick to the point of death, we're told. How did that news spread? Somebody traveled from Ephesus to Philippi. Okay? This network of journeys, this network of travels, this, uh, this back and forth with prayer requests. It's not just prayer request at philippiansbiblechurch.com. It's, it's somebody that has to travel to take that news. Yep, Paul's still in jail, and now Epaphroditus is sick. <laughs> More to pray for. Not only that, the news that they had heard he was sick made it back from Philippi to Ephesus. Right? Because this is one of those, they knew that he knew that he knew that they knew things. Okay, And in order for Epaphroditus to get word that the Philippians were worried about him because they had gotten word that he was sick means that somebody else traveled back between Philippi and Ephesus to say, hey, Philippians are praying for you and they're worried. They heard that you were sick. So how many trips are we up to now? Goodness. So he was longing for you all. He was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So he had heard that you had heard that he was sick, and that distressed him. Indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. By the way, why, why doesn't Paul just heal him? I thought the gift of healing was one of those miracle gifts of the early first century. Okay, well, it was limited. It was finite. It was fading away as, as quick as it was starting. Is one of the first of the temporary gifts that was already diminishing. A lot of the healers had already exhausted their coupons, if you think of it that way. The way the gift of healing is communicated is called charismata hematon, the, the gifts of healing. And it's not like, like my, my gift of pastor teacher is not like gifts of pastoring, whereby I can exhaust those. I use my, my gifts of pastoring, and sorry, I can't pastor you today. I'm all, I'm all out of pastorings. Okay? But healing was, phrased that way, gifts of healing. And when they were spent, they were spent and they ran out, evidently, as we understand it. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. 
So therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you know, at the time he brings them this letter and they're reading these words, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Paul will have peace of mind knowing that Epaphroditus rejoined the Philippians with, uh, with this letter. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Men like him, like, like who? Like Epaphroditus. In what way? Those that risk their lives, those that lay down their lives, those that serve, those that um, minister. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life. Notice here, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now, is that insulting or is that edifying? Is he, he's praising Epaphroditus, but he's also praising them, but he's also highlighting the fact that what he did completed a deficiency for what they didn't do. And I don't, I don't view it insulting at all. It's factual. It's loving. It's accurate. And, and none of us ought to be ashamed of what's deficient because in Christ everything is adequate. Everything is sufficient. If we are deficient, there is a brother that comes alongside who is sufficient, and God works these things together. So it's not a complaint. He's not griping, he's not moaning, and he's not blaming them. And if it's not clear enough in chapter 2, it's going to become even more clear in chapter 4. Paul says, look, I'm not complaining. I know how to get along in humble means. I know how to get along in prosperity. I've learned the secret of having all kinds of money rolling in. I've also learned the secret of tightening the belt and going hungry. And God will put us through all those seasons in our service to him. So we have this travel log. Past, present, immediately present, soon, shortly, and hopefully someday. All of these terms come up here in, in these travels that have already happened, they should happen shortly, and they will hopefully happen. Okay? And those travel plans, by the way, are a little bit at odds with Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon. All right, he's hoping to go to Colossae when he writes Colossians because he had never been to Colossae. He, he writes to Philemon and says, here's your runaway slave back. And by the way, prepare a room for me. I'm going to be there shortly. So is he going to Philippi? Is he going to Colossae? Or is he going to Spain? He kept, you know, all this time he kept saying, hey, I'm going to Spain, I'm going to Spain. When I get to Rome, Rome is going to finance my trip to Spain. All right. Anyway, I encourage you to consider, there's, there's a lot of resources out there. I recommend William Ramsey. I think Ramsey, St. Paul, The Traveler and Roman Citizen is a good book. Coney Barenhausen, of course, is a great book. That's Warren Dowd's favorite, Coney Barenhausen. There's, there's other books that talk about travel in the ancient world. There's a website, uh, the Orbis, uh, whatever it is, I think it's out of Stanford University, that tracks how they traveled in the Roman Empire by road and by ship and how much it cost. You know, if it takes you three weeks to get somewhere... That's not cheap. You know, you got to carry food that, you know, you got to, you got to pay for food along the way. You got to, how do you eat for those three weeks? How does your donkey eat? What does that cost? How much wheat do you got to purchase for your donkey? How much wheat do you got to purpose, purchase? Uh, what do you got to pay to sail on a ship? And we're not just guessing because we've got Roman records. We know what it costs to book passage from, from Corinth uh, to Ephesus or what it costs to book passage, you know, and in so many of these records that were kept. And uh, all the trips we're talking about here in Philippians 2, that wasn't cheap. 
Not only how long did that take, but how much money did that take? Um, let me share with you here. There's a, what really got me excited about this was a, uh, the word biblical commentary, um, volume 43 on Philippians. And um, by the way, it's interesting. This is volume 43, Philippians Revised. Uh, there was an earlier edition by the same authors, um, an earlier edition that's not in Logos, but it is uh, in print. I mean, you can get, I got it at the, at the Presbyterian Library. Um, you can compare the original edition to the revised edition, and it's curious to me why they changed what they changed. Same authors. Uh, but the introduction is slightly different, and their conclusions are different in the revised edition compared to the first edition. And, uh, and it's interesting to me, uh, this is where I first got excited about some of these details and things. Um, generally speaking, by the way, are you familiar with the word biblical commentary? Um, the, the New Testament volumes all have green covers. Old Testament volumes all have blue covers. They're a great series. Um, Got to be cautious, though. They tend to be very liberal in some applications uh, of some of their um, higher criticism acceptance and some other stuff. But they are spot on for language and geography and some of the other isagogical studies that we do, so I love it in those respects. Let me just grab a section of it here um, in the introduction. There's a section here on um, date and origin. Place and date of writing. Here we go. Place and date of writing with a huge bibliography. Other books and journals you want to search for. Um... All right, got five minutes left. Um, I may have to do some of this on Sunday, but from the second century, Marcionite prologues. Marcion wrote prologues to each of the different books, and he rejected some of the books, and he kind of created his own canon, and then he put his own little editorial um, prologues attached to some of those books, um, including, as far as Marcion was concerned, uh, this was written in Rome. All right, uh, And up until the 18th century, everyone accepted without question the fact, quote-unquote, that the Philippian letter was written from Rome. Now, in the words of a more recent writer, it seems impossible to decide the place where the Philippian epistle originated with any degree of certainty. In addition to the traditional location, Rome, uh, other locations such as Caesarea, Ephesus, and even Corinth have been suggested as cities from which Paul wrote Philippians. And each of these suggestions is supported by substantial arguments. The plethora of suggestions makes it likely that we can never know for certain. The best conclusion is that one location has the balance of probability. And that's probably academically a fair statement to make. The balance of probability argues for one over the other alternatives. In other words, this location has fewer problems than the other locations uh, have. Uh, he quotes from Debellus and some other sources here, Brown, for example. Um, That may be so, yet we should register the opinion that recent scholarship has taken a more positive attitude to Paul's Ephesian trial. He quotes Brown, but I think Brown was 1920 or 1910. Uh, more cautiously, Carson et al. Carson's modern times. Carson's our generation. Uh, the close relationship of Philippians to the Corinthian letters. More and more studies are tying those in, and it, it hurts me that I didn't know this when I was teaching First and Second Corinthians, because now with hindsight and doing all this work on Philippians, yeah, I'm seeing ties and connections to First and Second Corinthians 
uh, left and right. Anyway, the traditional case for Rome, uh, the traditional day... Okay, now, so here we go. The travels. Part of the reason why Rome is such a problem. The indication that several trips were made back and forth between Philippi and the place from which Paul wrote Philippians, all within the time of his imprisonment. So this is what he addresses here with an outline, A through whatever, A through E. Uh, a, news traveled to Philippi of Paul's arrest. Somehow they got word that Paul was under arrest. So news traveled to Philippi. B, the Philippians therefore sent Epaphroditus to Paul with a gift to aid him in his distress. There's your second journey. C, news of Epaphroditus' illness was sent back to Philippi. They heard that he was sick. D, word that the Philippians were greatly concerned about Epaphroditus being sick reached back to Paul. Again, that's news, that's travel. So we're up to these four trips already. E, Paul hoped to send Timothy to the Philippians and get encouragement back from them through Timothy before he himself set off for Philippi. So trip five, trip six, Paul's trip would then be trip seven. Uh, Comment on the adverb takeos in 2.19 and 2.24. Anyway, people have debated that. Silva uh, underplays the force of the adverb and dismisses the test of distance. He says, nah, it's a pseudo problem. Yet he is an error in thinking that Timothy and Epaphroditus traveled as imperial couriers, averaging in part 50 miles a day. That is a ludicrous pipe dream that, uh, to assume that Timothy and, and, and Epaphroditus could travel as official Roman couriers. Well, because, you know, the whole Praetorian Guard just got saved in Caesar's household. And yeah, they, they're they racing on these speedy Roman courier horses on Roman roads with full uh, warrants for safe travel and resupply and food. And, you know, there's a guy that's assuming an awful lot and a lot of fantasy and make-believe, uh, I think, mixed in. Anyway, um, no, instead of 50 miles a day, how about 15 miles a day on foot? and uh, so forth. So uh, anyway, I'm out of time. We'll have to pick up on this. Uh, The distance, we know how long it takes to travel from Philippi to Rome because we have records of that. And we have uh, Ignatius being sent on his journey to his own martyrdom, all right? And uh, he passed through Philippi on his way to Rome in, uh, in that process and other things there. So All right, well, that's our time for tonight. We'll pick up on this, Lord willing, and rapture pending uh, Sunday morning. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Bless our time of study, Father, and uh, open our eyes to the impact of these details. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.